Section 23 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15. William Rufus, 1087-1100, to Part 2. No king or emperor joined the First Crusade. It was rather a war of counts and dukes. Viewed from this aspect, it assumes the appearance of a great family coalition and divides into four leading interests. One, the Lorraine and Flemish interest, headed by Godfrey of Bouillon, Duke of Lorraine, Robert, Count of Flanders, and Baldwin of Hainaut, his cousin. Two, the Vermandois party, headed by Hugh of Vermandois, brother of Philip, King of France, who, through his marriage with Adela, heiress of the old Counts of Vermandois, was closely connected with the Lorraine and Flemish interests. 3. The Norman party, headed by Bomond, Prince of Tarento, Tancred, his cousin, and Robert, Duke of Normandy. All these were more or less united by ties of blood and interest, the Counts of Flanders were connected with the ducal houses of Normandy and Apulia by marriage, with the houses of Boulogne and Vermandois by the tie of sympathy. The House of Boulogne had long had dealings with the Normans of England. Eustace, the father of the crusader, had been one of the Normanizing party under Edward the Confessor, then a rebel under William I. Eustace, this man's son, had joined Robert against William Rufus, and was eventually to become the father-in-law of our King Stephen, the last of the Norman dynasty in England. The relations between Normandy and the south of Italy were no less close. No direct marriage indeed took place between the princely houses of Normandy and Italy, but Count Roger married a distant relation of the conqueror. The real connection, however, is to be found in the intercourse between the two countries. This is illustrated by the similarity of the government of Sicily with that of Norman England. We find a justiciary and a constable mentioned in Sicily as early as the middle of the 12th century, and the Sicilian kings also had an exchequer, the idea of which was probably borrowed from Normandy or England. But through the church, lay the chief bond of union. Many a Norman and English ecclesiastic wandered south and became a bishop in Apulia or Sicily. The architecture of Normandy may have borrowed the pointed arch from the Saracen buildings of Sicily, while in the southern churches we easily detect the Norman moldings and tracery. Norman monasteries were founded by Giscar in Italy as dependencies of Saint-Evroul. Hence, a constant intercourse between Normandy and Italy, and from the chronicle of Ordericus Vitalis, the monk of Evreul, we learn much of the Norman doings in Italy and the Norman view of the Crusades. Thus, then, the First Crusade may, under one aspect, be called a great Norman family alliance, and though the Lorraine interest was greatest at Jerusalem, that of the Normans of Italy affected in no slight manner the character of the expedition itself. The members of this family coalition severally represent the various types of crusaders and the divergent motives under which they acted. Godfrey of Bouillon and Tancred of Sicily 
are fair representatives of the religious devotees who entered upon the Crusades as others had gone upon pilgrimages in the simple spirit of devotion and yearned to win back the sepulchre from the sacrilegious hands of the Turks. Robert of Normandy best represents the wild spirit of adventure which found so congenial a field in the Crusading Wars. His impatience of restraint had led him to quarrel with his father. His carelessness had brought Normandy into anarchy and reduced himself to penury. And now, with the same indifference to the future, he had pledged his ducal crown of Normandy to his brother and went on a crusade, not to win a dominion in the East, but only to satisfy his roaming love of knight-errantry, eventually to return once more to trouble Normandy with his bad government, and finally, to end his foolish life in durance at Cardiff. In Bowman, we see the type of those who joined the crusade for motives of self-aggrandizement. To Bowman, the calm and cold politician, politics stood in the place of religion. He used the religious enthusiasm of others to carry on his long-cherished schemes of conquest. The eldest son of Robert Guiscard, he had taken a prominent part in his father's wars against the Eastern Empire. On his death, Guiscard left Apulia to his second son, Roger, while to Bowman was granted the principality of Tarento and Bari, with the traditions of his father's exploits, the hope of winning an empire in Dalmatia, Epirus, and Thessaly. To Bowman, therefore, the crusade appeared as an opportunity of pressing his political schemes, and of gaining a principality, if not in Thessaly, at least somewhere in the east, perhaps even of winning Constantinople itself. If we may believe the chronicler William of Malmesbury, he urged Urban to the crusade for this very purpose, and his future policy shows clearly that he cared nothing for the success of the ostensible objects of the crusade. Such were the many-sided interests which, for a short time united, led to the First Crusade. Into the details we cannot enter. Suffice it to say that the close of the eleventh century found a Frankish kingdom founded on the shores of Palestine. Godfrey of Bouillon, king of Jerusalem, Baldwin, his brother, at Edessa in Mesopotamia, Bomond with a semi-independent principality at Antioch, and Tancred holding the city of Kaifa on the seaboard. Thus, then, with the First Crusade, the Norman power reached its climax. The Norman not only ruled in England and Normandy, Apulia and Sicily, but had spread to the Far East, and was the first to plant his foot on the shores of Palestine, where no European had ruled since the days of Heraclius, A.D. 628. Meanwhile in England, Rufus had been enjoying the material prosperity so often permitted to the wicked. He had triumphed over the Scots and Welsh. The last rebellion of his nobles had been ruthlessly crushed. The church was completely at his feet. Anselm had been driven from England in 1097. Thomas, Archbishop of York, who enjoyed a precarious greatness in consequence of the exile of Anselm, was on his deathbed, and William had in his hands all the domains of the Archbishopric of Canterbury, those of the bishoprics of Westminster and Salisbury, together with those of twelve or more of the richest abbeys of England. 
freed thus from the restraint of those who would have been his censors, he openly spoke of turning all ecclesiastical property into fiefs, declared that he would become a Jew if he could beat the Christians in argument, and daily became more reckless and profane. Never day dawned, says his chronicler, but he rose a worse man than he had laid down. Never sun set, but he lay down a worse man than he had risen. Yet, in spite of his wickedness, he had energy and ability. Had these been only directed to better ends, England might have blessed instead of cursed his name. As it was, the feudal nobility were at least kept down. The incorporation of Cumberland with England, which may be dated from his reign, as well as the conquest of South Wales, were lasting additions to the strength of his country, and the Tower of London, completed by him in the noble hall of Westminster, built at this date, still stand as memorials to his greatness. Abroad he was equally successful. Anxious to gain the alliance of Normandy against the return of Robert, his government there, in contrast to that of England, was discreet and moderate. Order and justice, both neglected by his careless brother, were restored, and the country flourished. The vacant abbeys and sees were all filled up. The royal domains which had been dissipated by the extravagance of Robert were restored, and the Norman barons who held lands in Normandy and England quietly acquiesced in an undivided allegiance. Strong in Normandy, he waged a successful war against Philip of France and soon gained the castle of Gisors, an important outpost surrendered by Robert. Maine, indeed, he never gained. This, the first conquest outside the duchy made by William I, had never acquiesced in the Norman rule. Profiting by the disturbed condition of Normandy under Robert, it had once more rebelled under Elie de la Fleche, nephew of Count Herbert, and renewed its allegiance to the Count of Anjou. Though Rufus once retook Maine, his authority was never recognized, and the county was not secured to England till the reign of Henry I. In spite, however, of this repulse, the power of Rufus increased day by day, till puffed up by his successes, he spoke of conquering Ireland and claiming the throne of France, even of taking Rome itself. From these ambitious dreams he was suddenly called away by an ignominious death. Among the acts of his father, none had caused more misery or stirred more deeply the heart of the English against him than his cruel clearing of the new forest for the deer he loved so well. Under his son the forest laws and courts had been used as engines of tyranny. Their arbitrary custom prevailed. The courts were presided over by special officials who were irresponsible except to the king, and laws drawn up rather for the protection of the beasts of chase than of the king's subjects. On one occasion Rufus had refused to accept the verdict of the ordeal by which fifty Englishmen had freed themselves from the accusation of poaching, declaring that God was no judge of offenses against the forest laws. Cursed by such laws as these, the fair glades of the forest were looked upon as haunted and fatal to the conqueror's family. There his son Richard had died a mysterious death, and there another Richard, son of Robert, had fallen at the beginning of the year by an ill-aimed bolt. Numerous portents warned the king that his end was near. Even he himself had been terrified by an awful dream, but William heeded not. 
Do they think me an Englishman to put off a journey for an old wife's fancy? he cried, and from a last wild debauch in 1100 he went into the forest to die. Whether he was slain by the accidental aim of Walter Tyrrell, or by falling on the point of an arrow as he stooped over his prey, or by the hands of some of those half-starved peasants whose homes had been destroyed to yield him sport, none can say. He died unloved and unblessed. His body dragged into Westminster by one sorry horse, found indeed a grave amongst the old kings of England, but received no Christian burial, and when a short time after the Tower of Winchester fell, men said it was a sign of God's wrath, because his cursed body had found a resting place within that sacred pile. End of section 23